This is The Sidebar, a podcast by the New York Association of Black Journalists. My name is Femi Redwood, and I'm your host today. It feels like I'm consistently hearing of another journalist who left their job to create their own news content on TikTok, Substack, or on a podcast. They're saying goodbye to traditional newsrooms to join what's being called the creator economy. People who are basically using various platforms to monetize their craft. It's unclear just how many journalists are part of the creator economy, because to the best of my knowledge, there aren't any organizations tracking this. In fact, according to the Washington Post, the government doesn't really track the creator economy at all, journalists, beauty influencer, or otherwise. But while we don't know how many journalists have joined the creator economy in recent years, we do know it is a $250 billion industry. But make no mistake, it is a risk. Being a content creator, regardless of the niche, is competitive. Growing a platform is time-consuming, and staying on trend might mean you have to skip a day off. The list goes on. So why are people leaving their safest jobs with consistent-ish pay for something that feels like a wild card? In this episode, we're going to dig into some of those whys and some of the programs helping journalists transition into the creator economy. We're talking to Jeremy Kaplan from the Craig Newmark Graduate School of Journalism at the City University of New York. We're also connecting with Lindsay Gibbs, the founder and author of Power Plays, a newsletter about sexism and sports. But we begin with Jasmine Goodwin, one of the many journalists entering into the creator economy. My journey in journalism dates back to high school. Before she was even 18, Jasmine was a reporter for a teen website. From there, Howard University. Then a full scholarship to the Craig Newmark Graduate School of Journalism at CUNY. I focused on business and economics reporting. After graduation, her career had stops at USA Today and CNN, where she covered business, tech, and finance telling stories that were impactful, such as Gen Z and how they were affected by the pandemic-fueled recession, how moms were dealing with the pandemic as far as the workforce and childcare, Black female founders and their lack of access to capital, but how they were creating programs and opportunities despite the gaps and disparities that exist. So really just building a portfolio there of stories that centered business, tech, and finance, and audiences like women and Gen Z and people of color. She knew her reporting was impactful, but also knew she wanted more. Something that would combine innovation, tech, niche reporting, and her entrepreneurial spirit. This came as she noticed a shift, a sort of convergence of media and tech. Media companies want to operate and function more like tech companies and more like startups. And tech startups and companies want to operate more like media companies. And so there were a lot of conversations internally about how can we operate more like a startup. And a lot of the work I did in my role was kind of pushing us in that direction with the interactive storytelling and just the topics that we were covering and the ways that we were creating content. So, for example, content like a financial news quiz for consumers. But she realized that shift was coming sooner rather than later, and she didn't want to be left behind. So after giving it some thought, Jasmine decided she wanted to start her own media venture, so she left her newsroom job. I kind of spent my time after leaving the full-time traditional newsroom really being a practitioner, so to speak, as far as understanding how these ecosystems work, how investors think, 
how founders are supported, how funding works. You're probably wondering, what's the name of her media venture? She isn't sharing that publicly yet, but says it will launch early to mid next year and will offer a niche perspective of financial news. With the media venture I'm building, the way in which we plan to be different and set apart is that we're really meeting our audience where they are with our social first approach and really leaning into that phenomenon that we're seeing greatly exemplified in media that people follow people in sort of this shift from news media to news creator in terms of I will trust a news creator, a person to person before trusting a news media outlet or publication just due to those kind of pre-existing issues that we're all trying to grapple with as journalists and reporters is trying to build back the trust in the media landscape. And so that, in terms of what sets us apart, we're really focused on being social first, creator driven, that people follow people model, and also just creating engaging content in formats that they're already engaging with on a daily basis through scrolling and social. Additionally, talking their language, I think that a lot of newsrooms are trying to crack the code on how to build their younger, newer audiences. And so as someone who is really strongly rooted in sort of the Gen Z demographic and understanding the language of that demographic, being a part of that demographic, I think that gives us a bit of a higher success rate and, and being able to tackle what is a bigger issue or challenge, should I say, in the media landscape. So we're social first, we're creator driven, and we're niche focused. I think niche news is the future of news. And so seeing more news, new, niche news based publications and outlets. So we're specifically focused on Gen Z women. And we're specifically focused on the sort of beats, so you will, or coverage areas of business tech and finance. So taking my experiences as a business reporter covering that and seeing sort of this um, hunger and thirst for from Gen Z for this type of content that speaks to them in a language that they can understand in a, in, in a format that they engage with on a daily basis is very much our goal. And we hope that we can kind of really be a part of pioneering a shift in not only the news creators, but the news consumers in the business tech and finance space, which typically tends to dominate in certain demographics versus others just because of its topic and its nature and sometimes its complexities and nuances. She knows this will not be an easy road. In fact, most people I've talked to while researching this story say creating their own news content was one of the hardest things they've done. So why are so many people doing it? For some, they want to keep the money their content is generating versus all of the profits going to a company they have no ownership in. Others want creative control. And some just realize consumers need more. I think a lot of it is rooted in seeing gaps and understanding and knowing through their experiences in media that they're the best person to go fill those gaps. Progress in many different areas in the broader media industry and landscape sometimes tends to be a bit slower in its pace as far as people really understanding the shifts that are taking place and willing to put the money behind it, the resources behind it, the staff behind it to align with those shifts and those trends that they're seeing taking place. And so I think it's really a lot of marginalized reporters, diverse reporters, um, reporters of color, seeing that there's a need, seeing the pacing and the timing in which it's happening on a bigger, broader level understanding their superpowers, their strengths, what they bring to the table in terms of their skills, their experience, 
the audience they've built, the following they've built as a news creator, reporter, journalist, writer, video producer, editor, you name it, and leveraging that to fill a gap in a media landscape that has so much opportunity in terms of how news can be created and produced and shared. It is scary. You're taking a huge risk. Obviously, there is a cost with whatever choice that you make. I know for me, like, obviously, you think about the things that you could have accomplished if you stayed down the path of continuing to, you know, work your way up in the traditional newsroom, working full time as a business reporter. Um, But I know for me, I felt so strongly that the time was right to make the shift. I can continue to wait. And then it gets harder because of other circumstances and situations. She says that risk is often higher for marginalized journalists, especially because we are so often the only one in newsrooms providing that coverage. So when we're gone, so is that coverage. Despite all of the what-ifs, Jasmine is committed to her soon-to-launch media venture. And she went back to Cooney to make that happen. In 2020, it launched an online-accelerated entrepreneurial journalism creators program. It trains independent journalists, everything from how to develop newsletters, podcasts, sites, and other niche news products. Basically all the tools needed to get into the creator economy as a journalist. Jasmine's only been in the cohort for a few weeks, but is already seeing the value. I knew it was the program for me because it was it's really one of the premier programs that is supporting entrepreneurial journalism and takes you from step to step to building your next media venture or to build your current media venture better and really focused on sort of creators. And so it it really leans into that idea that we spoke about earlier of sort of news media to news creators. And so I felt like it was really aligned with what I'm trying to build. Jeremy Kaplan is the Director of Teaching and Learning at the Craig Newmark Graduate School of Journalism. He's also the Director of the Entrepreneurial Journalism Creator Program. First off, tell me about the program. I am so interested in learning how this idea came to be because this entrepreneurial journalism program just seems so timely, so on the money, and something that you know, our industry isn't exactly known for always being innovative. The Entrepreneurial Journalism Creators Program helps independent journalists around the world to create their own new ventures, their own new micro ventures. That is newsletters, podcasts, niche websites, other kinds of products and services that are serving underserved communities around the world. So in a 100-day online-only format, We help people think through the products that they're creating, the communities that they're serving, and how they can reach new communities and new audiences, and also, most importantly, perhaps, how they can make those ventures sustainable. In other words, how they can develop new revenue streams to ensure that the quality work that they're doing can actually continue to flourish for for some time to come. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned Revenue Stream because as we've seen over the years, so many journalists leaving their traditional newsroom roles to do their independent thing. Revenue seems to be such a big issue. Well, the first step is to have a an experimental mindset, an exploratory mindset. That is, we don't know necessarily what will work in each case because we have entrepreneurs who are joining us from, you know, for example, in the last three years from 40 different countries 
150 different people with all sorts of different projects. And so in each case, the solutions might be a little bit different um, from solutions in other cases in terms of revenue streams that, that might work. So, so the first step is to a- adopt a mindset that is an experimental mindset, an exploratory mindset, and to pursue what we consider to be a revenue portfolio, which is to say a variety of different revenue streams and to begin experiments to test out the viability of those different revenue streams. So we think a lot about revenue as something that is distinct for each project. So, and, and, you know, traditionally in journalism, we focused on two or three revenue streams. That is to say people paying directly for content advertising, or in some cases, uh, subsidy, governmental subsidy or self subsidy from wealthy individuals. And increasingly we think of revenue as picking from a huge array of possible approaches. So in addition to those three, in addition to traditional paid subscriptions, for example, or paid direct content and, and traditional advertising, we think that there are really a wide range of, of revenue streams that are working for a variety of different journalists today, independent journalists. And these include membership, which is paying for being part of a community and supporting a project because you believe it has value for the community. It includes a whole range of different sorts of philanthropy from philanthropy um, shared by organizations, right? Organizational philanthropy versus uh, high wealth individuals versus crowdfunding kind of philanthropy. And then there's a range of e-commerce kinds of offerings where people are selling things, both physical things and digital things. There is also events, you know, people want to get together. They want to be in community with other people, whether online or or in person. And that has been a a valuable uh, revenue source for, for some independent publications. And beyond that, there's a range of services that independent journalists can provide. And these are also great sources of revenue for, for many people. And, and, and that basically capitalizes on the skills that journalists have as great writers, as great editors, as great social media experts, and as people who can create multimedia, do data analysis, all sorts of skills that journalists have that they can parlay into revenue streams related to their to their ventures. Let's go back to the beginning when this program was still a concept, when CUNY administrators were thinking about how to form this, implement this, and why. What was that main why? Journalism is in transition. We're in an era which is characterized by massive change, and the industry is going through an evolution, and we're moving from a world where we had a couple of primary publications in each major city to a world in which we have dozens or even hundreds of distinct independent niche and micro niche publications. And by publications, I'm including all sorts of different kinds of journalism entities from newsletters and podcasts to niche websites and all sorts of other independent journalism uh, ventures. And so in transition, in moving from this era dominated by large organizations, by traditional organizations to an era really heavily impacted by independent niche and small and micro publications, we saw a need for people to have some guidance in how to make that transition and how to explore this this new ecosystem and how to survive and how to create quality journalism in a way that's sustainable. And we found that a lot of independent journalists and journalists who wanted to be independent or considering becoming independent had really strong journalism and reporting skills, editing skills, writing skills, multimedia skills, data skills. 
But what they really felt themselves lacking in was this arena around business skills and entrepreneurial sensibilities and how to actually develop a new product and how to market that product and engage with an audience in a new way in this new world. So that was the area where we saw there being a need and an opportunity for us to provide some guidance and support for journalists in the areas where they most expressed a need for that support and that guidance. And we started doing that in 2010, and we had an in-person program uh, because we wanted to gather people together from all over the world to stretch themselves and explore these new skills and create new projects. Because we also believe in learning by doing. You know, it's one thing to sit back in a classroom and talk about something in an abstract way, in an academic kind of way. And it's another thing to actually learn by doing, by creating something. So one of the hallmarks of our program has been every single person who has participated in our program, some 300 people from, from all over the world, they each have come with a project idea or a project in progress. And they've learned along the way about tactics that they could try, experiments they could run, new audiences they could reach, new revenue streams they could uh, explore. And that all is in service of helping them make the transition from this traditional world of journalism, this traditional approach to journalism, to this new entrepreneurial journalism ecosystem. What are you hearing from some of your, specifically some of your Black students, about why they want to do this entrepreneurial program and think about their journalism in a different way than we may have been for decades prior? So journalism has an equity problem. If we look at historically who had a voice to participate in leadership within journalism organizations, whose voices were represented in the pages of newspapers and magazines, whose voices were heard on television and radio, we'll, we'll see throughout journalism history that the industry didn't always represent the breadth of voices of the communities that they were supposed to be fully serving. And so part of the opportunity in this new entrepreneurial journalism ecosystem is for people to speak with their own voices in new ways, to reach audiences directly, to create new micro projects, micro ventures, niche projects that speak to and for and with communities that in prior eras weren't adequately represented, weren't, weren't served as a, as a primary target audience, weren't listened to necessarily, weren't given the opportunity to, to participate in dialogue or community uh, with, with those particular organizations. And so part of the, the opportunity we've heard from a, a wide range of people who participate in our program is to create something new, to, to, to develop new niche ventures that speak to very particular communities that haven't been adequately served. And, and I'll give you some specific examples to help illustrate that. Um, Black Women Photographers is a, a really great project aiming to address the fact that in many cases, um, Black women photographers weren't adequately represented in, in the pages of, of magazines and, and publications um, that uh, purported to serve you know, broad audiences. And so that was a project that Polly began to really build community, first of all, but also to help represent and help uh, empower um, women who were professional photographers, but maybe hadn't been um, given as, as, uh, as appropriate a voice as they had, they had deserved. Um, many other projects along those lines. I'll, I'll just mention a couple. Um, Inherited Travel from Shika 
Sanahori, um, who's a video journalist, a producer, and a director. And that was really about taking a different look at travel journalism and supporting indigenous-owned uh, travel businesses, um, exploring the ways in which people could travel and see indigenous communities around the world. And that, again, was a subject within the travel industry that maybe uh, at least uh, Sheikha felt was, was really inadequ- inadequately served um, up, up to that point. And, and many other projects like that um, really served communities or are serving communities that uh, were kind of hidden from the the publication some of the publications um that uh these these independent journalists were responding to or or or, um or moving away from but what is the next thing that we should be thinking about what is the next phase that you think journalism will be going one important new direction for journalism is collaboration and, and collectivism so there are many things that journalists can do independently, and many independent journalists have built really phenomenal projects. However, it is a taxing and challenging endeavor, and there's widespread rampant burnout among independent journalists who try to create something all by themselves, whether it's a newsletter, a podcast, niche site, or something else. And, and in many cases, it's really difficult to sustain from a personal human point of view for, for years and years. And so one of the th- the trends that we've seen emerging is this idea of collectivism and collaboration. And what it means is essentially journalists collaborating, combining their efforts, working together to develop ventures that are more sustainable from a human point of view, because they're not reliant on the, on the complete dedication of one person and one person alone. So I think in the coming years, we'll see more of that. We'll see these collectives emerge. We'll see syndication continue to grow where independent journalists are creating their work independently, but also syndicating it to partner outlets, to other kinds of news organizations. We'll see a growth in collectivism where people are working together, collaborating to create a group of newsletters or a group of uh, topical coverage areas that they work on together so that they benefit from some economies of scale and some some opportunities for for sharing resources. We'll see also services provided independently. So as an independent newsletter writer or podcaster, you'll increasingly be able to contract with someone to do some of your multimedia editing or some of your social media work or some of your copy editing or some of your fact checking, or in other ways, support the work that you're doing as an independent journalist, because carrying all of the burden by yourself as an independent journalist can be really challenging, no matter who you are, what your topic is, if you're doing all of the content, all of the marketing, all of the outreach, all of the engagement, all of the revenue uh, generating activities, and all of the operational management, that that can wear on people and, and that can lead to burnout and lead to to uh, to projects that that can't last. And so, in in addressing that, in 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 um, making sure that journalists can work sustainably there will increasingly be efforts to collaborate and, and collectively support one another. And, and I think we'll see more and more of that in the, in the years ahead. Is there anything else that we did not talk about that you think is pretty important to mention in this context? One thing that I think is really crystal clear to me at this point is the tremendous power that individuals have when they undertake to create a new niche venture in journalism. It's incredible that an individual can reach people throughout virtually any community and virtually any part of the world 
without being given permission by any anyone with power. It, it's it's a really incredible thing that that we as journalists now have the have the capability to to reach anyone, whether it's through a podcast, whether it's through a newsletter, whether it's through a niche independent publication online. We can reach people in ways that we've never been able to do, and that's really a revolutionary thing. And it's empowering and it's exciting, and it comes with a whole set of challenges. It's certainly certainly a, a, a tremendous challenge to create and sustain a, a project and to handle multiple different sides of that project. But it's incredibly empowering at the end of the day. And I'm I'm just super excited and, and optimistic about the potential it has. We've already seen the amazing work that that hundreds of independent journalists have done in creating these new ventures. And we've seen a robust ecosystem emerge around that with INN and with Lion, with the News Revenue Hub. All of these organizations are emerging to support independent journalists creating these niche ventures. And I think that makes it a really exciting time and, and a time where a lot of, of journalists are realizing how much how much power they actually have to serve communities that have been underserved. Throughout this episode, you've heard the word niche a lot for a reason. The drive for niche and inclusive storytelling is what also pushed Lindsay Gibbs to start her sports newsletter, Power Plays. It publishes twice a week, has 10,000 readers, and 1,000 paid subscribers. Let's start at the beginning. You were a sports reporter at Thing Progress before launching your newsletter. How did we get from A to B? Yeah, well, like many people have gone through, Think Progress was shut down by the people that were running it. So I was facing unemployment, which is not a unfortunately uncommon um, thing for people within our industry. And um, I actually, my former boss had started a newsletter at Substack and kept kind of being in my ear saying, I think that this would be a really good move for you. I think you should do this. I didn't want to do it. It wasn't something I was actively seeking out. But the more I thought about it, the more I thought, well, the ability to control something in this industry that is so uncontrollable, it sounds pretty appealing. So um, I, I ended up getting meeting with the people at Substack and you know, this was four years ago, so it was a little bit earlier in their development. And they offered me an advance to start my own newsletter. And that was enough security for me to go ahead and try it. I kind of figured what's the worst that can happen. And four years four years later, it's still my primary source of income and my primary uh, job. It's, it's my day job, um, essentially. So it's been a great experience. Usually when journalists are laid off, you know, we start the cycle of looking for anything. We've got that scarcity mindset and we are looking for it all. But you went into a different direction. Was that a hard decision for you or was it scary? It was very scary. It's still a scary. It's scary every single day. I'm not going to lie. Um, it's hard being your own boss. I, a lot of people are made for it. I don't think I'm made for it. I think I just do it. So yeah, it's hard and scary. And I question myself on a regular basis still. It's very vulnerable owning your own thing and doing your own thing. You're very much out there uh, on your own by design. And that's something that takes courage on a daily basis, not to be like really cheesy about it. But I, yeah, I think that some people 
some people, maybe for some people, it is really easy. I talk to some people who start newsletters or start their own businesses and they, it seems like they were just made to do this and they don't have any doubts, but I'm really clear with people that that's not my story. I have doubts all the time and it's still really hard and really scary, but I'm really proud of what I built and it's kept me from you know, being on that roller coaster for the past four years, it's a different type of roller coaster than, you know, applying for jobs and everything. It's still a roller coaster, but it's much more in my control. And that's what I really appreciate about it. Tell us about Power Plays and how that's going to be different from, you know, ESPN. And that's not a slight to ESPN. Do do your own thing. But how is Power Plays different? My outlet needs to be a supplemental outlet, right, to big media conglomerates that exist, to places with more resources, to cover sports on a day-in, day-out basis. I focus on women's sports, and I focus on big-picture issues in women's sports. So I'm always looking to tie things back to the power structures that are at play and the power structures that have worked so hard to keep women's sports marginalized and on the corners. We have series um, where we look into media coverage. It's called covering the coverage. We have, um, you know, we're always tracking the rise and fall of leagues and of teams. I'm really always looking at things from a big picture view, but connecting the dots across women's sports. So if you're a fan of women's sports, or really, I think just a fan of sports in general, and you're looking for a bit of a different perspective, that's where I come in. Again, I'm not going to be the person who's going to keep you updated on every single score every single day. I'm not going to be the person who's writing the gamers. I think all that needs to exist. Exist, and I want it to exist and I want people to do it. Um, I'm not looking to replace anything. I'm looking to add to the media ecosystem that we have. I read another interview with you from prior and you said that women only account for 4% of all sports coverage, which is insane. But when you announced this newsletter on Twitter back in 2019, you said it was for fans who were sick of sexism. So what were some of the ways that you've seen sexism play out in typical news coverage? You know, I mean, I think we just see it every day, first of all, in the lack of coverage. I mean, that's the first place that sexism is evident is in the lack of coverage of women's sports, right? Just putting it on the margins and acting like it doesn't need to be a daily and integral part of a sports news diet um, when it very much does and it very much should be. When it comes to sexism, there's also that intersection of racism. So that misogynoir that we do sometimes see in sports coverage. Did that also impact your decision to say, you know what, I'm going to do my own thing where I control what is coming out? Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, you can't talk about women's sports without also talking about racism and homophobia, right? Like it's, it's, they're both there in, in droves. And I think that, you know, when you have your own outlet, you're able to like have control over such things as even the images that you use with your articles and figuring out who are you centering and who are you not centering. And, and that's a big deal to me because, a lot of since women's sports coverage gets so little coverage, 
the um, the little amount it does often really will go to the quote unquote easiest people to market, which are often the straight white athletes, right? Who kind of fit into conventional standards of beauty. And I, those athletes are absolutely worthy of coverage because it's not like they receive a lot of it either. But they, but we need to make sure that the coverage is going proportionally to all women in sports, and especially in a sport like women's basketball that is predominantly black and predominantly queer, we need to make sure that those are the athletes that are getting a proper amount of attention um, for what they're doing both on and off the court. And so it is very empowering to have my own outlet and to be able to make those choices and to be able to point out the mistakes in coverage where I see it as well. So you charge for power plays and you have a few different tiers, including one that's $8 a month. I know earlier you mentioned uh, Substack gave you that advance, but is your current fee structure profitable enough for you to maintain your lifestyle or do you have to supplement your income? It's tough. Um, it, it goes up and down. It is just enough for me to maintain all my bills. It doesn't give me anything extra. But yeah, I've been able to support myself uh, almost fully with the newsletter for the past four years. I've taken on a few side projects, um, but those have really been kind of, you know, additional. It's not making as much money as I wanted to make. I wanted to make more. I want my lifestyle to be a little bit better, <laughs> but, uh, but it does support me. And I'm very, that's not something I take for granted. Over the past few months, we have seen layoff after layoff. What would you say to anyone who might be thinking of taking a similar path of you, whether it be TikTok, YouTube, Substack? You have to make sure that you are self-motivated. And that's, I struggle with that. I have ADHD and self-motivation can be very, very hard at times. And so for me, the hardest part about this is battling mental health with doing the newsletter because there aren't structures put in place. I'm the one who has to come up with all my daily structures. And that can be a really big challenge when you're not feeling well mentally. You know, sometimes when you're not feeling well mentally, you want to just go, you want someone to just tell you what to do. Do you know what I mean? Like you need external deadlines and you need, you know, someone making sure you're at your desk at 830 in the morning and things like that. Right. So that's really an ongoing challenge for me. And I'm very, I want to be very honest and upfront about people, about that with people. But the advice I would give is the primary advice I would give is to find a place where you can uniquely add to the media ecosystem. Like I said, don't think about replacing anything. Think about adding to it maybe, and think about what your unique strengths are. And that's where you're going to get the most traction. That's where you're going to be able to fill in. Look at the gaps that you see in traditional coverage. You cannot try and be like someone else. You cannot, you cannot fake. There's a certain level of authenticity that is required to make it on your own. You can't do it by faking. You can learn from other people, but you can't try to be them. If you're interested in subscribing to Power Plays, we will have a link to where you can sign up in the episode description. We will also include a link to Jasmine's social so you can follow her on her journey and a link to Cooney's entrepreneurial journalism program. If you like what you heard, give Sidebar a great review. A reminder that the opinions in this episode do not reflect the views of the New York Association of Black Journalists. 
For more information on NYABJ, visit www.nyabj.org. Music is by Hosina Raps.